Good to see you this morning. I am delighted to be here with you and uh, bring you greetings from my wife. She's the absolute joy of my life. We're empty nesters, and so she travels with me a lot. She, she had some other things going on, so she said, Buster, you're on your own this weekend, but she does send her greetings. We will celebrate our 53rd wedding anniversary here in a couple of months, and yeah. She deserves combat pay for being married to me that long, yeah. We met in college, uh, my high school sweetheart. Uh, this is the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. Uh, two weeks before I came back on campus, my high school sweetheart kicked me to the curb. Can you imagine somebody getting all rid of all of this? He said, yeah, I can, I can see that. But <laughs> so I said, no, no women, I won't date anybody. I'm going to be focused and single-minded and commit, committed to Jesus this semester. I'm not going to be distracted, deterred, or disrupted in any way. I got up off my knees there in my dorm room, walked down the street to another building on campus, mind filled with this deep-seated, stalwart, single-minded commitment to Jesus, not to be distracted or disrupted or deterred by the opposite sex. I open the door of the building and I see someone that I hadn't seen before. <laughs> and I don't know, immediately I was healed, divine <laughs> healing. <laughs> and my mama taught me to be hospitable to strangers and so she was new on campus and I said, what's your name? She said, my name is Karen Williams. And I said, well, I'm Crawford Loritz and I've been assigned to be your tour guide. So <laughs> So I've been showing her around for, no, she's been showing me around for all these years. Got four great kids, 11 grandchildren, and uh, I tell our adult children their only reason for existence is transportation for my grandkids. But I mean, started to say I was just kidding, but there is an element of truth to that. Well, we have a long ways to go in a short time to get there, so I want you to bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for how good you have been to us. You've been better to us than we could ever dream or imagine. Please forgive us for our entitlement. Um, we live in a self-serving culture, and that stuff splatters on us, and we are sorry for that. Father, help our hearts and minds to be focused today. I pray that no one will be distracted by any miscellaneous ramblings coming out of my mouth, but may we see Jesus high and lifted up, speak to us, give us what we need. We realize that you wrote a book, that these, this is not just motivational fodder or statements strung together, but this is the active living word of our great God. So Father, speak and change us and direct us and give us what we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm fully aware of the fact that you all have been going through a series here in the book of Luke, and uh, um, I was asked to consider uh, preaching from Luke chapter 6, uh, um, or if God laid something else on my heart. Normally I would do that uh, as a guest, I would go with the flow, but I, as I prayed, uh, this passage from Philippians chapter 4 uh, just kept resonating with me. And so I'm going to speak from Philippians chapter 4. And actually, if you're going to put a title on it, it's Christ Our Courage. Christ Our Courage. Uh, the, uh, nothing is meaningful apart from a context. Everything has a context. 
And often you've got to remember that when you read your Bible, that uh, you don't just make forays into a text or paragraph or verse. Be careful because it can lead you to make an assumption or a conclusion that that wasn't the author's intent. The book of Philippians is sequential. The apostle Paul is in jail. He's in jail for trumped up charges. They lied on him. Uh, And as you read the book of Philippians, you do understand, particularly in chapter 1, that he fully realizes that it may not end well. In fact, history tells us that he was decapitated for his faith. And uh, so there's nothing really positive about his set of circumstances. He's extracted from his ministry. He's going to be very dead. And yet, paradoxically, as you read the book of Philippians, it is baptized in joy. And you say to yourself, are you nuts, Paul? Are you, are you living in denial? Don't you know what's happening to you? And yet his demeanor defies his circumstances. But it's not denial. As you read the book, you know he's not living in denial. But his demeanor defies his circumstances. And in fact, as you read through the book, there's these sequential pictures of Jesus. In chapter 1, he presents Jesus or Christ, our confidence or our approach to life. It's like a great piece of classical music as he moves along. He's going through this grand crescendo ending up in chapter 4. In chapter 2, chapter 1, Christ, our confidence or our approach to life. Chapter 2, Christ, our commitment or our attitude in life. Chapter 3, Christ, our aspiration. Christ, our conviction or our aspiration in life. And now we come to chapter 4. And he gives us the reason why he's not in a fetal position. The reason why he's not crushed. Right? Because Christ is his courage. Our advantage in life. It's almost as if he's saying, look, you're not helpless. You're not helpless. Uh, please forgive me. I'm a little bit too old to do recreational preaching. So, you know, we live. One of the problems that I'm having with Christians these days is that we act so pitiful, as if we are helpless with life, always overwhelmed and always, you know, upset about current events and all of this kinds of thing. And here Paul tells us, ah, you know, you do have resources. And those resources are profoundly powerful. In fact, they defeat the hellacious set of circumstances in which you might be found. And this is our courage. This is our courage. And so he gives us four pillars of courage in Philippians chapter 4. And as you read through the text, I mean, they're they're obvious. They just jump right out uh, at you. And I'll mention the four, hang a little meat on the skeleton, and I'll be done. But he says, this is why why I'm not in the fetal position. This is why you shouldn't be caved in by the bad report of what's going on around you. Why? Because you have prayer. You do have perspective, that's a choice. And by the way, you do have power. And fourthly, you do have provision. Those are yours. Those are yours. So the very first thing he says is that we have 
Prayer. Prayer. And by the way, by the way, prayer is not worrying on your knees. Prayer is not some way of releasing tension in your life. Uh, prayer is not a way of just, you know, breathe, breathe. No, he's, you're going into the very presence of God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, that um, sets it up. I'm going to talk about verses 6 and 7, but he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Uh, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So then, therefore, he says, do not be anxious or be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then what's the promise? The condition is verse 6. Here's the promise. And the peace of God that goes beyond all human comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can't claim the peace until you surrender to the condition. Now, I want you to notice something very closely in the text. Paul commands an emotion. Think about that. Paul commands an emotion. In fact, he makes the assumption that your will can control your emotions. Now, we live in a culture in which we think with our feelings. We, we say, well, how, how does that happen? I thought my emotions are involuntary responses. I mean, they just overwhelm me. I mean, I, if something happens and I just can't help it. How can, I, how can I stop being anxious? But notice he says, be anxious for nothing is stronger in the Greek text. It should have been translated, stop being anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Paul was brilliant. He did understand that if you decide not to do something without replacing it with something else, that's just an exercise in futility, isn't it? You can just say, you know, I'm not going to be anxious. 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 Not, you can say it 30,000 times, but you're going to be anxious. What do you have to do? He says, be anxious with nothing. But notice how specific and intentional he is about the prescription. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. I don't mean to become so granular here, but listen, listen. He says, but in everything by prayer. The word translated prayer there implies bringing what's on your heart into the very presence of God. God is not impotent. He's not sitting around sipping Maalocks over our condition. He doesn't have to get a focus group to figure out how to solve our problems. We're taking all that's in us into his presence by prayer and supplication. The word supplicate has to do with the, with the focus, intensity, and seriousness of our prayers. Do you really mean that when you pray? Are you just fussing with God? Are you just venting? Are you just worrying on your... What, what, do, do you mean that? How serious are you? See, desperation is associated with intentional Christianity. Notice I did not say despair. Despair is hopelessness. But desperation is the signature of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Crawford, how serious are you about this? You take it 
by prayer and supplication, I really want God to step into this. But notice he says, with thanksgiving. That's the faith component. I expect God to work. Now, the problem with us is that we get disappointed when he doesn't work the way we want him to work. That's because we only we have a one-dimensional definition of deliverance. But in the Bible, deliverance is three-dimensional. God will either deliver us from it, deliver us in it, or deliver us through it. We want to camp on delivering us from it. But God in his sovereignty says, no, sometimes, Crawford, I want, I want, to, I want to take you through it. Why? Because you need to experience something by being in the heat for a while, with, with closure being suspended, so I can prove my sufficiency and my greatness. And sometimes God says, no, I'm not going to even take it away. For the rest of your life, you're going to be in this. But I'm going to demonstrate that I'm able. So you trust him. Now the promise. And the peace of God that goes beyond all human comprehension. This is, this is remarkable. <laughs> Just think of it. Paul says, when you do this, you decide in your mind that you're not going to let the circumstances or the things around you to control you. You defy them. You don't deny them. You defy them by bringing it to God. God dispenses his peace. It goes beyond all human comprehension. She'll guard your hearts and protects you emotionally. People who know what you're going through say, you, you know, you, you ought to have a permanent twitch. But you're not doing that. You ought, you ought to be having all these emotional meltdowns, but, but you're not doing that. You've got your heart and your minds. And you, you, you're not thinking squirrely, you're thinking clearly. Hmm. Why? Because you prayed. Our youngest son taught me about prayer when he was seven years old in a very real graphic way. Let me explain this. Seven years, boy, that boy's 41 now. I'm old as dirt. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> you know, my daughter said about seven, eight years ago, my oldest daughter said, Dad, every year you got more face to wash. And I was just, that's <laughs> Hey, it's <laughs> my family for the faint-hearted brother. So... <laughs> So uh, I digress. So, um, so when he was about seven years old, I was out on the West Coast. I was speaking out there. We live in Atlanta. And, and uh, uh, my briefcase got stolen. I was at the Alamo rent-a-car counter at LAX airport. Now, my wife, you know, she gave me a hard time about this because I'm paranoid about when they travel with me. I'm always getting out after them. Watch your stuff. Watch your stuff. Watch your stuff. And so she said, oh, did you watch your stuff? So... Uh, <laughs> Oh, rough. So it was right behind my, my right leg as I was doing, somebody just stole it. Well, in that briefcase, I just seen my cousin uh, who gave me uh, the family tree that my grandfather had written in his own hand. That was in there. A Bible that my, um, uh, the pastor that led me to Jesus as a teenager had given me was in there. 
and a silver pen and pencil set that my dad had gotten when he retired. He had given it to me, and he wasn't going to use it anyway, but uh, uh, that was in there. And on top of that, I got this, I don't like carrying a whole lot of stuff in my pocket, so on the plane, I put my wallet in there. And so that was gone. So I'd come back home and uh, I'd tell the family all this stuff. But Brendan, every night, every night before he'd go to bed, he was praying, Jesus, give Daddy back his briefcase. This was in September, every night in September. And in about a couple of weeks after that, I told Karen, I don't have the nerve to tell him I'm on to the next thing, okay? But, but the kid, and I didn't want to disappoint him. He's praying every night, every night in September. Every night in October. <laughs> and every night in November. And I'm just hoping that maybe this is the night, Jesus, he'll forget to pray about that. We're on to. Every night, the first couple of weeks in December, give Daddy back his briefcase. I said, boy, this kid is obsessed with this thing. So, so uh, I get a call in the middle of, of December. This is remarkable. This guy in Redondo Beach, California, uh, he calls me, and this was back in the day. I had a luggage tag on the briefcase, and he had my phone number. He calls me, and he says, are, are you Crawford Lorenz? I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I, I found your briefcase behind my place of business back in September. And I just stuck it someplace and forgot about it. And I, I want to say, I have it. And uh, he put it on a plane. That was back in the day. You can tell how old I am. Well, you, you could put stuff on planes and before all the security and stuff. And I get to, I go to Delta, and I'm, I'm, this thing is coming off the carousel. I've got this vision of the briefcase all torn up and, you know, all this stuff. And this ain't going to be good. He probably should have kept the thing. But, uh, and it comes around, it, it looks, looks intact. Well, I open the thing up, everything is in there except my wallet. And so I came home and I had a briefcase behind me. I said, uh, Brendan, guess what? I said, here's, here's my briefcase. Well, I thought he would be up in the air and jumping up. He just looked and said, Dad, I told you, Jesus, give it to you. And he went on. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you expect when you pray? What do you expect? I got to hustle on here. Prayer. We're not, we're not without resources. Prayer is the first pillar of our courage. The second pillar of our courage is perspective. You might find that to be strange, but listen to what he says here in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I'm not going to parse all of those qualities out to you, but basically what Paul is intimating, there's there's an ellipsis here. What he's saying is you're going to become what you think about. Oh, yes, you will. He's not, he's not giving happy talk here. This is not some empty, the power of positive thinking here. But he, he's saying, you, you know what? You control your perspective. Stop looking at the south side of everything. Rain in your head. As D. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously says, stop listening to yourself and begin talking to yourself. Talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. 
Tell yourself, no, that's not right. Stop thinking that way. I don't have to be negative. I know I've been hurt, so I slash my expectations and reduce things down here to protect myself and all of that, but that's no way to live. Your joy is a product of what you focus on. I am, so, I, I am so done with the angry evangelical, the angry Christian. You know, I, I tell you what, this last, this last 10, 15 years in this country, we've been branded by, we call it being prophetic or holding the truth. That's a bunch of bull feathers. That's not necessarily so. Is there any hope? We don't reflect the negative cesspool mindsets of the culture. We bring hope, hope that is real. God raised the dead Jesus. There's victory. What are you thinking about? You will become, I will become what I think. And Paul is saying, don't bring this defeatist mess into life. Now, mind you, he's in jail. They're going to kill him. And yet he chooses to reign in his head. He's not denying the reality. This is not rudderless, positive thinking. But there's beauty and joy. You can control your head. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Stop giving the, the, the power of your well-being to erratic circumstances. Thirdly, the first pillar of our courage is that uh, we have prayer. Secondly, you, you're, not, you're not helpless about how you think. We have perspective. But thirdly, we have power. Now, verse 13 of Philippians chapter 4 has been misquoted and slapped on everything. And I want to quote the verse, and I want to back it into its context. Uh, verse 4, 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We do have power. Now, that verse does not mean you can do anything you want to do. I wanted to be a center in the NBA. <laughs> At a cheater six foot, that ain't gonna happen. I can claim Philippians 4.13 all I want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and I keep getting the ball slapped back in my face. My son, our son, the one I talked about, I'm picking on Brendan today, he was a phenomenal baseball player. In fact, he was my early retirement program. Then God called him to ministry. I said, are you sure? <laughs> you know, I'm going to say, get the sign. <sighs> but when he, he was pretty dominant, um, when he was, <laughs> uh, he, he pitched and played third base. And if he had uh, gone on in the draft and stuff, he probably would not have pitched. His stick was very good. He's switch hitter. He was ambidextrous. It looks like a long story. But I remember in high school, um, uh, and, and, but he had his cap. He wrote Philippi, under, under the bill of his cap, Philippians 4.13. Well, we're, we're, Karen and I were sitting in the stands with a high school baseball game. You know, the, the high school ball field of the stands right out, right out there. He was on the mound, 
and he was behind in the count. And I could tell, I mean, I know my son, he was getting a little frustrated. So he steps off the mound and takes his hat off, and he looks at his bill. And the counter says, what is that boy doing? I said, well, he's reading Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He said, well, why is he reading that? I said, I don't know why he's reading that, because Jesus ain't going to help him on this one. He needs to find the strike zone. <laughs> so, you know, find the strike zone. <laughs> and, uh, and by the way, the I got to hurry up. The, the rest of the story of that, this, this is hilarious. This is, it's, so my wife is up, uh, she said, Brendan throws strikes, Brendan throws strikes. All these people are there, and you know, the, he can hear us because right on the field. He steps off the mountain and goes, Mom, what do you think I'm trying to do? And so, <laughs> my wife goes, oh, I'm going to kill him when we get on the show. No, in context, it's not talking about you doing whatever you want to do and you slap the verse on it. In context, picking up verse 10, it says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You, haven't, you were indeed concerned for me, but you, ha- you, had lacked, you had no opportunity. Not that I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in, in, in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Now, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He is talking about contentment. In other words, my circumstances, whether I'm flush with cash or I have nothing, Jesus is able to counteract within me the pressures that are outside of me. In so many words, he's saying discontentment is a choice, it's a decision. Contentment is a choice, it is a decision. It's not determined by your circumstances. He says this with impeccable integrity. You know where he is. Stop procrastinating your joy and happiness until your circumstances change. You're going to be one pitiful, depressed person. I can do all things. He is able. My contentment is lodged in that which can never be affected or changed. In fact, more specifically, it's lodged in who can never be affected or changed. That's Jesus. And he can give me the strength. You, you, you don't have to be destroyed by what you're going through. Now, it can destroy you if you take your eyes off the Lord. Absolutely it can. But you can, you can make it. You can make it. You can make it one step at a time. And that's what we have. First pillar of our courage is prayer. The second pillar of our courage is perspective. You don't have to think that way. Well, you don't know all this happened. Well, I know. I mean, you know, everybody's getting dumped on. You don't have to think that way. You're not without power. But then fourthly, you have provision. A God who's promised to meet your every need. 
Verse 19 says, and my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God will meet every last one of your needs. Now, he might not give you everything you want. He doesn't exist to prop up a lifestyle. But he'll meet your needs. I got got to tell you, I'll land a plane on this one. Um, My wife and I have lived from God's hand to our mouths all of these years we've been married. I could be here all day long telling you story after story after story of God's supernatural provision for us. And God has taken care of us in impeccable ways. We got married when we're uh, May 22nd, 1971. We're, I was still, still in college. She was uh, 20 and I was 21. I know, you do the math. I'm 74, okay? You see. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I know, I look like I'm 93, but that's okay. Um, we're still in college and in and, um, undergrad school. And so um, I was speaking on weekends, and even in college. And uh, my dear bride, she was working at this continental insurance company. We were living, we went to college in Philadelphia, but just over the bridge, we lived in Camden, New Jersey. Got to set this up. We lived, we lived over this urban mission, tiny apartment over the mission. But my daddy didn't raise a fool. They, you know, I heard that I, we could live there free as long as we kept the, the mission clean. Well, I can, I can sweep and dust. I knew how to do that. So free was good. And, uh, but we were, we were not poor. We were poor because we couldn't afford the other OR. And so, <laughs> I mean, it was, this place was right in the hood, in the hood. The apartment across the street from us was the liquor store and our, our, our Friday night entertainment. I should not say this. This is not very nice. But our Friday night entertainment was, you know, the guys get paid on Friday and, and you know, in the evening, you know, they get all lit up and, uh, with antifreeze over there and this kind of thing. And we look out the window and, you know, there'd be fights and this kind of thing. And I would try to figure out who was going to win. Uh, <laughs> and we had, we had a TV that didn't have sound, but it, you, could, you could see the picture. But in Philadelphia, there was a uh, TV station that broadcast on the radio uh, the, the TV sound. Uh, don't, don't ask me why, but I put the t- that behind that. We had one station, ABC, with the sound going, so it was, it was, it was wonderful. So she came home <clears throat> uh, one Friday, I'll never forget this, and uh, she was crying. And she, um, what happened was that... Um, Philadelphia had, uh, there was a tax that they had made retroactive for people who lived in New Jersey that, but worked in Philadelphia. And long story short, um, we had 25 cents left to live off of for two weeks. Now, even back in 1971, that does, that, that wasn't a lot of money. So we got down on our knees. She said, she said well, what are we going to do? And we got down on our knees. I said something like, we're going to trust God, although my heart was, my mouth and my heart were not lined up. So we prayed, and I quoted every Bible verse I knew on faith, and there were some verses that weren't in the Bible that I quoted that uh, <laughs> I wish were there. 
And I was just kind of, he was scared. She, so now that we get finished praying, that Monday we had, we had the high speed line, the passes that we had gotten them for the month. I could get to school and she can get to Philly. And I'll never forget, as we left the house, she said, well, I, I don't know what we're going to do. I said, well, I think we're just going to keep trusting the Lord. And I get on campus, I go to my mailbox there, and I open up my mailbox on campus, and there was this card that was there. I had spoken at a Youth for Christ rally in western Pennsylvania, you know, a couple of months before that. And one of my classmates' dad was there, and I opened a card, and he said, Crawford, I'm sorry, I've been meaning to send this to you, kept forgetting about it, and I just wanted to thank you, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a check for $250. And uh, I came home, and I'll never forget this. When I said to her, it was as if I've never heard God audibly speak to me, but this was the closest. It was as if he said to me, this is how I want you to live for the rest of your life. If you trust me, I'll always take care of you. I will always take care of you. Our four children have undergraduate degrees and graduate degrees, and we have not owned, owed a dime. They've not gone into debt. God has provided. I could tell you all about this. Trust him. He'll take care of you. He's not going to let you drown. You might get some water in your mouth. You might have to make some hard decisions about lifestyle, but he'll take care of you. This is the God that we serve. Run from this inferiority complex that has gripped much of Christianity these days. Stop viewing yourself as some parenthetical loser in an otherwise winning society. You kidding me? The God of the universe is with us. You've got prayer. You have perspective. Have power. You've got his provision. Holy Father, thank you for yourself. Even as I'm praying right now for those who don't know you as Savior and Lord who might be in this building today, I pray that they will come to know the God that loves them infinitely, the Jesus who died on the cross in their place and for their sin. And even now as I pray, may they pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn from my sin and trust you as Savior and Lord. Father, help us to take all that concerns us and place it on your shoulders. You are for us. You love us and you care about us. Thank you, God, for who you are and for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.